0: After a year of running experiments, we realized that successful sellers and marketers didn't have the next greatest playbook. They actually had frameworks, insights, and tests that they ran and refined.
1: Welcome to the B2B Power Hour, where we align go-to-market teams together to win the right business with better experiments. I'm your host, Nicholas Dickett, and I'm a seller. And I'm your other host, Morgan Smith, and I'm a marketer. Join us for live shows and interviews that will help you learn what to test so you can sell and market better to your customers and prospects. Now, on to today's episode. Hey, Joey. What is up, man? I cannot tell you how excited I am because this little birdie, and you may have heard of him, this Kellen Casebeer, you know, out of Cali, said that you are the guy for account-based sales development and you're moving more weight than his squats so (laughs) I am ready for this uh that's kind of
0: him I am a guy for sure maybe the guy I don't know we'll find out I guess at the end of this episode if I'm an imposter uh yeah man I love account-based account-based everything and I am definitely way better at squatting you won't be able to tell on camera but I'm a beefy human being (laughs) Six three two forty five 245, former division one football player. Like, whatever, you know, like, who's counting?
1: We'll <laughs> <laughs> have to go razz him after this. Yeah, no worries. So I wanted to go ahead and set this up. So one of my favorite things that I keep hearing in meetings of VPs of sales right now is, you know, our pipeline is down 40 to 70%. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like, what do you think is driving that? What, you know, when it shakes down to it, what caused it? Well, we don't have enough at-bats. We just need to significantly increase our activities, and I thought, I feel like that's just the perfect place to start. Yes, I love that, and I think Aaron Ross and Predictable Revenue would probably
0: say, "Yeah, just more SDRs and more tech." Right? I'm kidding. I don't even know Aaron Ross person. I'm sure he's a great guy, but I think Predictable Revenue is cancerous to the sales culture of modern day society. But we can talk about that later. It is what it is. <laughs> Listen, man. I think <laughs> I think that we're coming in hot, but for me, the biggest thing is. I think that a lot of folks play this game of volume, and I think there's so many levers that ought to be pulled on that oftentimes are either we're ignorant to them and or we knowingly neglect the levers that are important. I like to liken it to like a website, right? Oftentimes, people try to drive traffic for you marketers out there, right? So if I get a thousand people to my website and I have a 1% conversion rate on my website, then... I get 10 leads or 10 purchases or whatever your metric is for success. Most people, if they're not, I would say the wisest of marketers, or if they are just a search slash traffic type of person, they're going to suggest, well, let's scale it up. Let's get 2000 in there. And 2000 gives me 20 purchases. And then 3000 gives me 30 purchases. A couple of things that happen there. One is there is a law of diminishing returns. At some point, you will feel the confines of your TAM, your total addressable market. And that number of 1% will drop. So that's one issue. The second issue is we don't focus on the lever that is the 1%. How do we get that 1% to 2% or 3%? And how do we get the 1,000 traffic that's already coming to produce the 15, 20, 30 leads slash purchases that we want? And sales is no different. How do we just get better with the activities that we're already doing and stop playing the volume game? Because there will be a
1: law of diminishing return, especially in B2B sales. And so... Does that mean that uh, account-based sales development is like the saving <laughs> grace? Because I know I always—it seems to be like the big thing on LinkedIn right now. It's almost like it never existed before, and it's—it's it's almost so funny how like it's such a novel idea, and yet, did it change the busyness trap that we're all caught in? Well, it's funny is, and I love that you mentioned busyness because I think
0: that we can go down that rabbit hole of busyness versus productivity. But I think that if you look back to the the history of sales. It's always been person to person, personalized outreach. I mean, you can look back to insurance salespeople. So, this is what's this is really interesting. So, my grandfather or my wife's grandfather, he's now passed, but he worked 60 years at New York Life as a life insurance guy and was one of the best life insurance guys in, I think, Nebraska at the time. And, um, It was always shaking hands and it was one-to-one and it was hyper-personalization and all the buzzwords we use now, like that's literally been around since day one. And I think that the introduction of scale, or at least the language of, we use the word scale. I think by definition, most people who call it scale, it, it is not actually, it's just growth or at least inflated growth. I think that technology automation I think a lot of that created a mass volume one to many sex appeal of like, oh, we can take this message and scale it to the masses instead of having to do the hard work of one-to-one or one-to-few. And I think what we are seeing is there was like this bright and shining, yes, it was new to the market. And I do think, and I and I, I jest, but you know, predictable revenue made popular the SDRAE model, high volume selling, leveraging a little bit of technology. And I think the problem with that. And I'll shut up here in a second, but because I could talk on this topic all day, is I think that one, a couple things were true when Aaron Ross wrote that book. One was it was Salesforce, which had a brand. A lot of these organizations we're talking to who have the SDRAE model do not have a brand, so them selling into the market as a sales development rep is much different than someone calling from Salesforce. Now they have the brand they have now. No, of course not, but they had a brand. Like let's be honest, um, and they're pioneering. The second is the SDR has changed. Back then when he wrote that, the SDR was $32,000 base salary a year, maybe an extra 10, 15K in comp. Nowadays, base salary is 55, 60K if you're lucky. And then you're expected to have at least an additional 20 to 30K you know, to get them to on-target earnings. And then additional to that, now in order to compete and get the right talent in, you now have to have the sexiest, shiniest tech stack and the best data source, and intent data, and all these different tools that are licenses that we have to purchase as owners and as companies that if you have a large SDR team and a large account executive team, and you have all these tools that require seats for all of them, it's really challenging to get a profitable sales operation off the ground when all these expenses are bloating, and it's way different than it was 12 years ago. So account-based sales is, is where I would go.
1: Yeah. I can't tell you how many companies, when we've started to dive into the financials, just to kind of get an understanding of profitable growth and their CAC payback. So after they've went and paid for getting that customer, and now they're looking at how long it takes for them to actually earn a dollar is three to four years. Like I've had quite a few that have been over 30 months and there's no retention set up. And so we're talking about like really high cost, but then we go back to like you were saying about brand, well, even if you didn't have a brand, the one thing I find funny coming from investment banking is that before technology was always people and process. Mm. And so, one of the things I've noticed is I don't know if it just got blended. I don't know if, and please like correct me if you've seen something else, but it's like people forgot about the testing aspect. You test one to one, you go and find something that works. And once it works consistently, you automate it, and now you work on the next round of testing until that doesn't work and you go. And to me, that was the whole point. I go process people tech in
0: terms of an order of importance. And I think the challenge is that we have been trained as buyers to go the opposite direction, which is tech people and process. And I think that whenever we see problems nowadays, our instant inclination is to either throw a technology solution at it Or throw a body at it and instead what we should be doing is looking at the process the underlying way that we do things to get relatively repeatable outcomes we need to be looking at that first and then let's add a body to it and then let's optimize the body with technology and i think that we just have it completely backwards at this point and so i think that's why we're you know you're seeing this decline in the market with a lot of buyers and VPs of sales and CROs and all these people who are frustrated at, at the profitability for one, the production for two, I just think it's a downward spiral that they're going to have to remove themselves by changing the strategy and the strategy's I think, moving more towards an account-based type of approach.
1: And I would say a holistic approach to not just bits and pieces, you know, frank and stacked or frank and pieced together, right? How many times do you see that too? And they're like, well, you know, this, this isn't working nobody's repeating it enough, how would you know? And maybe that's something we should go and just touch on really quick is when you're looking at data with a company and you're looking at how account-based sales development is actually working for them, do you have like a red light, yellow light, green light of like knowing the health of that movement?
0: Yeah, I think that a couple of things. I like to look at, like my biggest thing I look at, it's very simple. Like mm-hmm. the easiest metric is I simply look at accounts touched to accounts activated ratio. Mm. if that's not at least a 50 to one number, then it's unhealthy in my opinion, because we can drive that to 10 to one. Like I've seen it as low as four to one, which is insane for a lot of people to think about a 25% conversion on touches, not just accounts worked, but touches. And so if you can drive an account based operation, sub 50 to one, ideally 25 to one is kind of a good sweet spot that I find a lot of well run organizations are operating at then I think that you could find yourself in a, in a healthy place. But if you're not there, then I think that there's a lot of issues going on. So that would be my kind of like red light, yellow, like green light. Getting towards 50, it's yellow. Above 50 is red. And I think if you're getting down towards 25 to one touches to activation ratio, then I think you're in a, a relatively healthy place. And I talked to a, a company the other day. They're like, we're at 1600 to one. I was like, you should shut your company down. <laughs> Oh, (laughs) I said that as obviously joking. I was like, this is probably a product message, a message market fit, or you have the worst known salespeople, or maybe you just have deliverability issues and you're getting pinged by shake and stirred and you just can't get through. I don't know.
1: But there's a lot of if thens. Well, I'd almost wonder, is it the messaging? Is it the account research and mapping? Or is it the targeting? And I know one thing you said in our pre-call that, really resonated with me because I see this as well is so many companies saying that they do account-based sales development, yet they're selling to TAM. 100%. And you had something called TAP. Yep. Would you mind diving into that for us?
0: Yeah. So we talk a lot about uh, sell to the TAP, not the TAM. And so I think that oftentimes we look at our total addressable market as these are our buyers. And when I create campaigns and strategy, I look at my TAM as opposed to drilling down to individual accounts as your segment. We might get cute enough to say, here's our TAM and let's segment that into 50 different segments. Like, yeah, you're gonna get better results than if you just do like a one to many to the whole TAM. Sure. You might get your one to maybe 3% conversion instead of your 0.5% conversion, but I want that 10% plus conversion. And so what I'm looking for is what we call a TAP, which is the target account profile, right? A lot of people call it ICP. I don't like that language in an account-based motion because ideal client tells me that it's still this like theoretical, right? It's still telling me that you, this is theory, our ideal client, anybody who's like plus or minus 20% of this is kind of like our TAM. I like to look at the tap, which is like, okay, what is my target account? Give me examples. What's their genetic makeup? What's their, their buying committee? Like who's their key buyer? What's the buying committee? Who's my frontline members? And so that brings me to the next layer down is if you understand your tap, then you have to understand your tap map, which a lot of people talk about account mapping, key buyers, the top layer, basically who cuts the checks has to raise their hand no matter what cannot be, they can't be neutral or negative, they have to be positive on on moving forward. Your buying committee, I like to describe as anyone who, who might influence the decision and or they just can't be negative, they can be neutral, they don't have to raise their hand, but they have to at least be neutral, they cannot be negative. And then front lines committee is that their vote doesn't matter, but they have intel about the buying committee or the key buyer and, or they are impacted by whatever we come in with our solution and do. And so I'm a big fan of top down, right? So start key buyer, move down to the buying committee, and then I'm a middle out guy. So who's the next most important move out on the buying committee, however many members there are, and then a bottom up, if I can't get any penetration through those two levels, How can I then go from the bottom to either get Intel to try to penetrate and or get referred up to somebody? And so I think when you think at the TAM level, yeah, sorry, I get real jazzed up over here.
1: No, that was fantastic. I just know it's going to be, I can just see people hitting pause and rewinding and listen to that sucker three, four, five times grabbing the transcript. That was juicy. (laughs) Juicy. So
0: bringing it back to one boilerplate statement, I think that we sell to the TAM, we pick our ICP and we create copy and strategy based off of that TAM. Everyone's different. You know, if you think about like the buying window, there's like, what's the statistic? 3% is in the buying window, 40% yeah. is in the persuadable, 30 percent's in the whatever. And then, you know, you get it. I don't pay too much attention to that. But I think that oftentimes in a larger volume approach or in a really poorly run account based approach, you're lucky to just get the buying window. I want to really penetrate that persuadable window as well. And that comes down to really knowing my tap, my target accounts. Who are they? Where are they? What's their buying window? What's their motivations? Who's in the map? So on and so forth.
1: I love that. I love how you went and how you go through your different plays too. Of okay, I start here. If this doesn't work, then I go here. If this goes here, then I go here. I think that's what you need for just your sanity, (laughs) and also to provide an actual, you know, worthwhile buying process. And. The one thing I'm thinking about is, so yeah, you got your value hypothesis, which is your ICP. I think these people are going to want to buy for me. And then you actually do like a win-loss and you're doing some reflection, finding those you know patterns that make a really great fit and you're calling your tap. Now, I the one thing I'm wondering, so say my manager, or hope to God it's not marketing, goes and gives me this <laughs> list of 20 taps. And don't get me wrong, like there are some unbelievably great marketers out there that really get this. Bless their heart. Yeah, you're, you guys are <laughs> worth your weight in gold. But uh, you get these 20. Now, if you're working these 20 and they're all taps, would I want to go and set up triggers to prioritize? Or am I just now working them, looking for positive triggers from that messaging?
0: Yeah, I look at, so a couple things. One is the progression that I like to go is I like to really get clear, like so we call tap clarity, like who is the tap? And then I want to tap map. So who is, or map your tap or whatever cute word phrase we want to use and understand the different buyers and the different levels involved. And I want to actually plot out who those people are. So it really comes down to really solid research. And I do want to set up triggers. So I look at triggers in like three different layers, right? So the first one is is intent. I don't put a ton of stock in a tent, be completely honest, unless they're just like off the charts, right? Like people spend all this money on six cents and like, that's great. Or they spend all this money on Zoom infos, you know, and and they set up signals and triggers there or, you know, Apollo's got a decent one, but as a whole or Terminus even. So I think that like all these tools have like value, but if I'm looking at the three levels of triggers, it's probably my third most important. The next level up is what I would consider like account behavior towards, like basically motions towards me. And so are they actually committing any actions towards my brand personally? That's a massive trigger, right? that's obviously should be placed above intent because they are make, taking action towards. And the last is, is what we call like one done and run. So are there any awards that they've won? Are there any Things that they have done, any um, insider scoops, have they put out a job posting for a certain position that correlates to my solution? Those types of things. And then run is, are they on a a run right now? Like where are they on the run? Are they on a growth mode? Are they on headcount growth? Are they on survival mode? Are they on headcount decrease or plateau? Like what are some of the actions there? And that's probably the second most important if I will stack ranking those. They would go behaviors towards me, inside scoops and one done and run, and then finally is intent. So I want to set those up at a bare minimum. But then it really goes down to drilling into, I think it's the most important thing, drilling into that account map and truly understanding the individuals behind the titles. We always forget, like, these are just freaking human beings. Like, we go home. I live on a 70-acre ranch in Tennessee. I've got a wife, a kid, and one on the way. I've got friends. I've got pains. I've got goals for my life. Like, you sell to me. Sell to Joey. Don't sell to the CEO of Apex Revenue. Right, And so understand who those people are in each account and do that heavy lifting because yes, you're not going to do the volume play, but if I can get a 10 to one ratio of touches to activations, that's a worthwhile endeavor for me. And there's a downstream effect, which we can always talk about, but a downstream effect when you do account-based business development that impacts conversion in terms of close rates down the road. I found a 350% increase in the actual deals one revenue increase just by going account-based versus more of like a spam your
1: TAM. That makes sense. And I've noticed something similar too. And even actually if people don't even wanna go on triggers and like talking about like pain-based triggers or like willingness to engage and generic intent and they want to talk about messaging, I just finished a study that I was looking at the top 2% of reps versus the bottom 50%. And it was super interesting. The bottom 50%, 99% of their messaging was product focused. Interesting. So just features and benefits. Yeah. It's almost like that. I don't want to say ignorance because that's not true. It's that overconfidence that people should just want them and they haven't done that work to build that business case. But where it got really interesting and was in the top 2%. So you were talking about that, that prime window. So it mapped to what I saw about 5% of the overall messaging was pain-based. Yes. But 80% of their messaging was actually learning and development. And I think that plays back to what you are talking about, how roles change, and I think it's because of, whether you want to call it title inflation, but I think just the way we work has changed so much in the past five years alone. And all these things that never used to go and play into our job, now, for some reason, have everything to do with our job, and everybody has a say. And I think everybody is just confused and trying to figure things out as they go. So I think everybody's looking for that clarity or that voice that can provide a little bit of comfort or confidence. And then the other interesting piece was that last 15% was passion-based messaging. Love it. People probably call it something different, but the passion was either professional or personal. So I always love like networking with beer nerds or people that I'll go and look for a certain keyword in their profile that we can just go nerd out on certain things because it's fun. And then professionals, what do they really care about in their role that might, that we know from past experience that is probably going haywire and maybe they don't realize that their world is falling apart around them, but they know it's annoying. And let's, let's just have a conversation about it. But it was very interesting. What never came up in any of their messaging was product, not even once. Yep. Or
0: even uh, keeping it relatively vague and intrigue based. You know, I think that you know, I'll give you an example, like we just had a deal close, and the way that the conversation got started was, was just a cold email that was extremely well constructed and well researched. And so, and I'll, I'll tell you about kind of the, the process, but it was nonetheless, we've kind of found like a codified way to like, uh, I hate the word scale, especially when it comes to account based, but there's a way to codify efforts that enable you to have a little bit more efficiency in an account based motion. So, But nonetheless, we always start the first line with extreme personalization. So it starts the subject line. So the subject line for this particular individual was Rolexes, fly rods, and account-based sales. So just three things. I try to do like personal, business, random, or personal, personal, business, or something like that. I, I like to send it out in threes. But it's basically, it gets such a high open rate because it's like literally that can't be automated. You can't just pull that with clay even, you know, people are using clay nowadays because it uses artificial intelligence to find information. You're not going to find that shit. Excuse my language. No, fire away. Right. That gets me the open. Talking about levers, right? Because we're we're talking about quantity, we talk about quality. The lever I'm pulling on is if I just get more opens, even if my body's the exact same as if I was sending a scalable one to a hundred or one to many, but I got a higher open rate, I'm naturally going to have a lift on my conversion. So that's the first thing. Then you go down to the body. And you start the first thing you I always structure it in a very like lax way because I want us to feel like it's man to man, human to human. And so you start with a very personalized first line. And then as you get down further in the email, like it's obvious that we've done our research. I, I mentioned that he's been at his job for 10 and a half years. I mentioned that he's, you know, climbed the ranks from four different positions to now be the VP of sales, like all the things that you can't automate. And like, of course, I'm going to, he's going to convert Right? He goes, okay, I'll buy it. And the cool thing is if you do that, again, talking about your account map, you do that for the CEO, you do that for the VP of sales at the same time. And my favorite tactic is what I call a weave where you put them both on the same touch point. So a LinkedIn group message with all three or an email thread with all three on there and address all three of them crushes.
1: I actually love doing those too. I did that by a fluke. I accidentally added the other person in. I meant to just go and mention them in the DM and I accidentally mm. added them and I just <laughs> never realized. Love it. But it was interesting because they it was the same pain point, that same thing that they both wanted to talk about. And because they were never in the room together and they could never do it in real time by fluke, they kept compounding on each other and it became this snowball that became my business case. It's hilarious. I won a big sponsorship years and years ago off of uh, LinkedIn DMs with group DMs. It's hilarious. Yeah, I I think that uh, a lot of people underestimate the power. And I I think the one thing I wish people knew too is like, it doesn't always necessarily have to be a meeting right away. Like I do a lot of my discovery in the DMs or even in the comments, whatever is more natural for the buyer. And then you go from there, but I can hear people that are listening to this episode and they're like, okay, Joey's giving me a really good framework. But how many? So yeah, of course, you should be tracking your activities to see where you're getting the best bang for your buck and what's actually working. So you get that, you know, return on effort. But how many accounts should you be working at any given time? And how long should you be working them? Do you have any guidance on that? Couple
0: things. So how many I think is going to completely come down to what's your conversions at every level of the pipeline. So If I wanna reverse engineer what is quota or what is goal or whatever your number might be, you know, revenue. Then I wanna go back to what's my close rate. And then before my close rate, it's how many proposals. And then before my proposals, it's how many were qualified opportunities. And then out of qualified opportunities, how many meetings showed up. And then before that, it's how many meetings that I book. And then how many activities to get to that meeting. So if I can go 50 to one ratio, right? And I know that I need four call it five opportunities in the pipeline or booked meetings. And I know I have a 90% show rate, 95%. So i talk about the downstream difference account-based. You have nearly hundred percent show rate. You do a more spammy approach, high volume. You have like a 70% show rate. So there's downstream difference there. That's another lever to pull. So if I know that I have a 50 to one ratio, then I do 250 touches. I get through 250 touches in X amount of days, call it 10 days or whatever. 25 touches a day or whatever it might be. Then I can kind of reverse engineer revenue. 10 days is going to equate to one deal. So that's one thing you should do. I think a lot of people just don't know their numbers. And so yes. we sit behind a keyboard and we have all these dashboards and reports, but we don't measure the shit that matters. It's like, what is the progression from my activities all the way through? Now to be a little more practical, as you start getting those numbers, I find it valuable to have you know what some people might call an activation cycle. How many touches or how much time am I am I willing to allow to run to ground before I put them on a failed activation list and I resurface them a quarter from now or two quarters from now, etc. Yeah, an exercise that we do is if somebody goes to failed activation, so I have a, a process, but we call it a scout list for any accounts that are that meet a TAP profile of some sort, TAP persona, go into a scout list, which is is really just a rough list of like a feed of people. This could be, some could be intent, could be other things. They go on a scout list, but after the scout list, if they get researched, they go into on deck, assuming your next list is full. If your next list is full, which is what we call a sim list, S-I-M stands for set in motion. Have I basically set in motion my approach to go after them? Am I actively going after trying to activate them? And then they either go activated or they go failed activated. Or they go graveyard if they tell you to F off and you don't want to work with them. And so what you want to understand is whenever you run through an activation cycle and they don't activate and you move them to failed activation, then every quarter we revisit our failed activation list and we make a decision. Do we put them back in the queue on deck or sim list or do we put them in graveyard never to go after them again? And you just make sure that you have that list handy your whole sales team goes through it every quarter and on the quarterly basis you you go over field activation and decide is this worthwhile to go after again or not and that's a a relatively simple process you can build internally to understand that so that's i mean that probably answered your question in different ways but there's some stuff in there hopefully it's halfway valuable
1: oh that was fantastic it's funny you went when you went through your how you go and sort it i have something very similar i'll have like a dynamic list that is that tap list. And then I have working where they're basically now they're, some outreach has started or research has started. Or you're assigning yeah. leads based on your account mapping. And then there's priority where there is a willingness to engage. So now, like you were saying, that that activation has now happened. And one thing I wanted to ask you, and I don't think I've ever asked this in an interview before. Do you think is enough? For sales development to stop at an initial meeting?
0: That's a great question. Meaning, do you stop doing account
1: based efforts once that meeting has occurred? A lot of companies there, you know, SDRs are comped on if they book that meeting and if they show. Would you say, you know, like once you've done a good handoff to your AE, you know, if you were reinventing sales development as we know it, do you think that should be the stopping point for that SDR?
0: Not at all. No, I think, in fact, you should be on a cadence with the AEs and be game planning account by account until that contract is paid and signed. And then I think at that point, the baton is handed over to the AE to check in post-sale. I don't believe in AEs doing account management. I don't know why people would ever do that. Always focus on revenue generation. But if we want referrals, we want retention, we want upsells, you have to have your AE continue to be involved beyond the sale And it could be as simple as just creating a process or a cadence that's like once a month, once a quarter. I'm I'm surprising and delighting somehow because I might be able to come around and ask for the referral or ask for the testimonial or ask for you to be like, hey, can you pinch it on a deal? I'm close to closing, right? The SDR, I think, can do the exact same thing. And I've actually moved. So this is funny. I don't know if you're going to like this or not. I have moved away from SDRs altogether. I have fallen back in love with the full cycle account-based sales rep. I want you to open, I want you to nurture, I want you to close, and I want you to surprise and delight beyond the sale. Because I've found, again, going back to what we talked about, predictable revenue, the cost of the SDR plus the AE, the cost of all the the technology and licenses that we have to maintain per person on our team. I found that if you can pare it down, I would rather give a full cycle sales rep an assistant or a part-time admin. That can help them do non-revenue generating activities and manage CRM and take notes during calls and those types of things than I would to fragment and silo and fractionalize the sales process. Because again, account-based, like the North Star is trust, Mm -hmm. right? Account-based builds trust from first touch through closed one, through retained and everything beyond, right? And so what I don't want to do is I don't want to create friction or fragment the sales process where I might lose momentum and lose trust because of a handoff or because of I like this guy. I don't like this guy. I would much rather keep continuity throughout the entire process because I can build upon that trust and I can build rapport with that person. I can build relationship. And so that's where I might flip your question on its head a little bit and say, I don't even know that I believe in the SDR anymore. Not that I don't believe in it like Santa Claus, but... In terms of looking for the most efficient most profitable model I'm leaning more towards the full cycle ae slash sales rep
1: it's funny you say that uh, when i i don't know if you've I ever told you my story but uh, i wore my burnout as a badge of honor and i actually landed myself in a 30-day all-inclusive hospital stay fighting for my life and one of the things when i came out of it is i still love sales and my question the thing that has been true ever since that day is how do you succeed in sales and not mm. kill yourself in the process yes and i was like who is doing this who is actually making this happen and so there was people with families there was people that had really great hobbies outside of work there was more to live for but one thing ran true is that they all acted like marketers mm. And so one of the things I'm curious is going to happen in the next two to three years, just because of how buyer preferences have changed in the way they consume and learn is, are we going to see sales development actually go to a marketing role and do the one to many and then help to filter down to the one to few? Or is it just going to disappear altogether?
0: Yeah, I think that's one thing that I had a phrase that I've used quite a bit, and especially in most recent and artificial intelligence kind of ruins this or makes it amplifies this even more but automation creates commoditization and i think that automation or you can make that somewhat where you can use synonymously automation with high volume right and so you can get high volume through your dialers your power dialers your i don't even know who i'm calling but it's a list that i've been given and or it's a list i built a while ago and I'm, i'm just ripping through dials doesn't matter that volume play, it can work and I don't mind it working. So here's why I say the SDRs I think, dying. I don't think it's dying in a demand gen type of world, right? Where I think that if we are creating brand awareness, if we are creating some form of lead generation and demand, I think that there should be a little bit higher volume reaching out to those people. Because again, back to the trust conversation, if there's demand there, there's trust there already. Whereas in a cold environment, where we're doing cold outbound, there is zero trust. And so I think that if there's trust already there, then having a higher volume play is fully reasonable. And I I would actually say it's probably a wise decision, but in a cold environment, I don't know that it's very wise
1: these days. I think the hardest part is good judgments based on pattern recognition. You remove good judgment in the way in which it succeeded before and it fails. And that's what I see with a lot of sales development movements. They're not actually preparing people to buy, they're just spamming. And I think the moment that we bring back good judgment, but we th- consider where that good judgment actually has impact, is when it actually will change the buying process and you'll win from it. And I honestly don't think that automation necessarily is a bad thing I don't either. if it's tied to good judgment, right? But I feel like us, a lot of people, they it's a set it and forget it. And I think that's why it might work to start, but it falls apart at the end.
0: And sales teams work with marketing to create the copy that they're gonna automate. It's like, please don't do that. I'm also not anti-automation. I think there's a lot of things that could, so I call it front of house and back of house automation. Like back of house automation, automate to your heart's content as much as you can, right? So if you can automate some levels of research, great. If you can automate some levels of like tap identification, great. If you can get some workflows in place to kind of set you up to do proper account-based outreach, great. When it comes to front of house, that's where I think you got to be extremely, extremely intentional. And if you're going to inject some level of automation to front of house, front of house is like market-facing. So cold outbounds, client-facing, all that type of stuff. I think that you have to be very careful with introducing automation there. And if you do, it's got to be based off of extreme understanding of the buyer. Like you have to know that this particular email I've sent multiple times, we know converts within a accounts touch to accounts activated ratio that we believe is acceptable. And then you could do it. And even then I probably wouldn't lead with it, but I'd probably have it somewhere in my sequence or cadence.
1: I heard someone a little while back say that the best thing that sales could do is actually start in CS, interact with the customer when they're actually realizing the value, figure out who those people are, figure out who those people aren't. And uh, the more we can do that, that's actually better than starting out in a sales development role because it'd be hard to go and sell a trade when you've never done the trade.
0: 100%. I think that's also the big thing that sales reps are suffering from is ignorance to the product market fit in like an actual, I see it, I understand it, I watch it happen. I think a lot of that comes back to, can you get sales involved in client success and account management, not to do it, but to witness it and, and view, why did this person buy? Why didn't they buy? Why did they buy this product, but not this product? As they're using the product, what's the pain points they're experiencing? What are the wins they're experiencing? If you can answer those questions by watching someone process that in real time, like naturally, that's going to inform your sales
1: outreach. I wish that sellers, and this is something I failed, this is a lesson through pain. I wish sellers would go in internally think, why is this problem worth solving and how is it an investment? Mm. And if you could just do the like the bare minimum mental math before you start doing your outreach like you were saying with your tap, then it's worth the interruption if you do call them or if you do go and send a DM or whatever outreach you're doing, even if you show up and do a pop-in like old <laughs> the good old days, right? The good old days. Maybe that's... You know, one thing we'll go and end on when I was a road warrior talking about good judgment, your judgment came from the research because I couldn't automatically pull a number, email, or even an address. Like I 100% you know, when I first started, I was in the library doing research, and you had to go and like understand the industry before you could go and learn anything about the company or any of the personas. So, a lot of people in these roles are really struggling because a lot of it wasn't onboarded or taught. And so, if there's an SDR and AE listening, and they are really struggling, they have those really high numbers on the wrong side, and they're not able to book those meetings, they're not opening opportunities consistently with good numbers. What is that stupid, simple next step that they should start with?
0: I think you just mentioned it. I think you have to sit down with CS and sit down with clients. I think if you're an SDR, sit down with an AE first an AE who's produced and closed because if they close, they know how to talk the language. They know how to press on pain points. They know how to press on goals and future pace. And what are the things that they, why do they ultimately sign a contract? So start there, but then I think take it a level deeper and go to client success. And I don't care if it's not part of your company's training and onboarding, like reach out and Slack to someone who's on CS, who's been there and who's seasoned and say, hey, can I get a one-on-one? Like that would be probably the best thing you could do. The second best thing is going to your prospects with nothing to sell. And this is how I've built my companies originally was, and I, I took this, you know, seven years ago when I started my first company that we sold. The first company I ever started, I started because I called 10 people who I, I deemed at the time were my ideal clients in a market that I knew I could serve with a problem that I thought I could solve. And I went to them and I said, hey, I don't have something to sell to you right now. I don't want you to see through this as a veiled pitch. It legitimately is I'm trying to get better at my craft and I have assumptions of what the market wants, but I want you to shoot holes in what I have. I'll even pay you for your time. Right. And so when I did that, you know, you have 10 of those conversations, they will tell you how to sell to them. And by the end of it, they're like, Hey, so like if I'm actually interested and then now you have buyers. Right. And so go in with a servant heart of like, Hey, I want to serve the market. I do want to be excellent in my craft and then go talk to the people who will be your buyers or talk to your, you know, if your account management team and client success team will allow you to talk to your customers, reach out to your customers and, and literally sit down with them and say, Hey, why did you buy? What problem were you solving? Have you solved this since working with us? Would you do it again? If you are to do it again, how do you do it differently? That's going to help you more than the training curriculum or listening to SDR call recordings from the past, right? Talk to the buyer. And they'll tell you
1: real-time feedback with real potential customers that are telling you exactly what they're struggling with Whew. so is my invoice going to be in the mail like holy crap was that a <laughs> <laughs> that's a nugget to finish with so joey i know now after that everybody's wondering how can they go and stay in touch with you how can they, where are you posting content how can they learn from your brilliance
0: yeah i mean link, connect me on linkedin is an easy place social I'm hit or miss over there because I just hate logging into LinkedIn to be honest but uh, it's an amazing place for community and content so I will go there so just find me at Joey Gilkey but our company is apexrevenue.com feel free to check us out there you know we do fractional sales leadership sales management we build sales processes sales systems we hire sales reps and then we'll manage them part-time if it makes sense or support an existing sales leadership team so if that is interesting to you great if not then just hit me up on LinkedIn and let me know this was either valuable or that you hate me.
1: There you go, guys. You heard him. Joey says, get in his DMs. Let him know what you thought. The raw, real truth. Give him a little <laughs> feedback. And uh, thank you for joining us today. And Joey. Dude, thank you. Oh, I can already tell you there's been a few episodes that I've done where I'm not even finished recording it. And I, I already know as I'm like marking clips that I have to go back to because I will be listening to this and taking notes five, 10 times. And this is definitely one of them. So thank you so much. We're definitely gonna have to do this again.
0: Humbled to share the mic. I'm sure we're gonna have a version
1: two of this. Completely different topics. Love it. Let's do it. Well, thank you very much. And uh, hope you have a great day. Take care, everyone. Hey, we know how hard implementing this stuff is. That's why this podcast exists we decided to take it a step further and start the One Up Club to give you the frameworks
0: and resources you need to move the dial in 2023. Learn more at
1: b2bpowerhour.com join. Because we know you have a quota and you can't afford to wait.